When we were in Las Vegas, we had a, a dear couple, Tom and Claire, who were members of our church, and they had come from Manhattan Beach Presbyterian Church. They were an older couple, and they were there the first Sunday that Greg Bonson preached his first sermon as the new pastor. And Dr. Bonson told the congregation, the small congregation gathered at Manhattan Beach, I'm going to look at a lot of scripture, but I want to hear your Bible pages turning because it's imperative you see these, and let's learn how to be Bereans together. Tom said, he wrote down the scripture text, 60 texts in 60 minutes. And he said that was an unattainable standard that Dr. Bonson could never do again. Well, our sermon tonight will do something similar, and we will demonstrate a great commitment to Bereanism. Before we begin, I want you to look at Acts 17. I want to remind you what is deeply woven into the DNA of Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church. This is the Woodruff Road way for this congregation to be Bereans. And when we say that, I, I forget sometimes that everybody doesn't know what that means, and so I don't want you to suffer from that. When you look at Acts 17... We read in verses 10 through 12, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness, searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Now, the Apostle Paul, when we opened Acts 17, is on his second lengthy missionary journey. He's doing evangelism and planting churches with his team, Silas and Timothy. And something very rare happens in this text. Mark it down, point lots of arrows uh, in your Bible to these three verses, Acts 17, 10 through 12. Because the Holy Spirit does something so rare, he pays a compliment to a specific group of people in verse 11. Look what the Spirit does. It's His Word. And He points to and compliments these people, the Bereans. When that happens, you want to sit up and take notice. The compliment is paid by the Spirit to this congregation because the attitude and the practice they display is so rare. These synagogue attendees in Berea, we're told, received the Word. This would have been the Old Testament. With readiness. They didn't immediately dismiss Paul's preaching because it didn't agree with their traditional understandings. And then we're told they searched the scriptures for, for verification. They weren't gullible, they were researchers. This would have involved, since they didn't possess their own personal scrolls of the Old Testament, coming back to the synagogue day after day, unrolling the scrolls and checking and cross-checking. Many of them would be involved in this. And I will tell you, the loveliest sound in the world to any preacher it's when you're preaching to hear the pages of Bibles turning. I still don't trust people have their Bible allegedly on their phone. Because I've seen a few of you checking NFL scores on your phone. But we're told about the Bereans. They also searched the scriptures daily. They were so consumed by the desire to know the truth. And so this was a daily preoccupation of theirs. And then we're told of them, many of them believe. The bottom line, all their hearing and study and research was to embrace the Christ they found there in the Old Testament and trust Him fully. They didn't search the Scriptures to doubt, but to believe. They weren't moved by tear-jerking stories or emotional music, but they were driven by the Word. And so as we prepare to, prepare to dig in deep to this subject tonight, our twelfth type, how can you be more like the noble Bereans? Well, first of all, 
Listen to the sermon with an open Bible. Tonight we're going to look at several texts. I promise you not 60 like Dr. Bonson did in his first sermon, but a lot. There's no authority any man has in this pulpit except insofar as it's derived from the Word of God. It worries me when I go to other places and preach and I read through the Scripture text without hearing anyone open their Bibles and I want to say, you don't know me. You don't know if you should listen to me. You don't know if anything I have to say is worthwhile. I hope you didn't come to hear me. God is the one worth listening to, and he only speaks by his word. So I'll wait a few seconds while you grab a Bible. That's what I want to say, but I usually have better manners than that. Incidentally, you don't want to be at a church where you can listen to sermon after sermon, and it doesn't matter if your Bible is open. You want to be at a church where the preaching pulls you into the text to see it, to listen to it, to find connections with it. Test everything. Take your Bible with you. Open it up. Follow along. See for yourself where what is being taught accords with Scripture. And then how can you be like the noble Bereans? You can plan to not rush on from the word of God to the rest of your life. The Bereans saw scripture as something that deserved their attention. It merited their time and their effort. They examined it daily. They weren't skimming. They were searching. And to do that, you have to give yourself to unhurried time in the word. How can you be more like the Bereans? Get in the word as a way of life. We're told of the Bereans that they examined the scriptures Daily. Be honest. Just in the last week. Were you in your copy of God's Word each day? Recent studies and surveys by Ligonier says well over 50% of evangelical believers never open their Bible except between the hours of 11 and 12 on Sunday. But the Bereans, they came to the Bible and kept coming back. Is there a frequency and a consistency to your spiritual consumption? You will not make Uh, progress in godliness without persistence in God's word. And how can you be more like the noble Bereans? We must approach the Bible with eager expectancy. We're told of the Bereans that they received the word with all eagerness. This was their posture to the word, readiness and expectancy. Whether you're in a conversation or in a congregation, your posture says something. It indicates whether you're leaning forward, ready to listen, ready to learn, or whether you're bored and distracted. The Bereans had good posture. I'm saying that metaphorically. They were on the edge of their seat, ready to receive the word. And then how can you be more like the Bereans? Be prepared to study deeply. That's what we'll do tonight. In fact, I'm almost sure I can say that we will go places you have not been. That's important for people to grow up. We say that Woodruff is a church for grown-ups. That involves deep study. We're told the Bereans examined the scriptures. The word examined refers to a legal process like a trial. It speaks of an in-depth, entailed examination of the Bible. Many of us work very hard in other areas. We work hard to learn a language, get a degree, practice an instrument, study for our professional boards. But how hard do we labor to study and understand and examine the scriptures? You don't have to be the smartest person in the room tonight. It doesn't say that the Bereans were more noble because they had a higher IQ. They were more noble because they were dogged and persistent in their hearing of the word. And how can you be more like the Bereans? Be confident that the Bible is an open book. The Reformers talked about the perspicuity of Scripture, that that Scripture was understandable through the ordinary means of diligent study. And so let's roll up our sleeves now and begin to dig in. Numbers. Numbers in the Bible matter. The Holy Scripture, given by the Holy Spirit and preserved by him, are full of 
numbers. Does it matter, for example, the number of the persons in the Godhead? The sixth question of the Shorter Catechism, that glorious document that our children are learning on Wednesday night. If your kids aren't here, they need to be. But the sixth question asks a number question. How many? How many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer comes back. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. If you get the number wrong... If you say, oh, two, four, you're a heretic. On PTL, and don't take this as a recommendation to watch it, on PTL on October 3rd, 1990, Benny Hinn stated that there were nine persons in the Trinity. And when he was confronted about it, they said, three, nine, what does it matter? Numbers matter. In this case, Our eternal salvation is dependent upon believing in the God who's revealed in the Bible, not a God of our own making, our own number. The Bible contains a staggering amount of detail. Names and dates and places and genealogies and census and inventories and catalogs and building plans and procedural instructions. Almost all of these contain numerical information. A robust doctrine of the inspiration of scriptures demands that we take numbers in the Bible seriously. Since all scripture is breathed out by God, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, God doesn't waste his breath. Everything that's in the Bible is there for a reason, especially numbers. As it turns out, Jesus thinks numbers are highly significant. Now, open your Bible and go down the road with me. And again, I promise not 60 texts, probably closer to 20. So look at Mark chapter 8. And I want you to see how important Jesus thinks numbers are. Now, stay with me because we are coming to our type tonight. It is a number. But in Mark chapter 8, Jesus thinks that numerical details reveal important theological truths. Look at Mark 8, verse 19, after Jesus fed the multitude consisting of 4,000 men. And Jesus scolded his disciples for their lack of faith by drawing attention to the numeric details of the two previous feeding miracles. Look what he does. He brings up exact numbers. He says, when I broke the, here they come, and watch how fast and furious the numbers come at you. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you don't understand? Jesus thought it was very important that there were 12 baskets of leftovers the first time, seven baskets the second time. He didn't just say there were lots of leftovers. He gives a specificity. In 1970, Bernard Ram penned the standard work on biblical interpretation called on hermeneutics called Protestant Biblical Interpretation. This is my textbook in college. And Ram was notable for his careful scholarship. And when he comes to writing the chapter on interpreting numbers in Scripture, Ram wrote these words. There is no question that there is a basic symbolism of numbers in the Bible. For example, this is Ram speaking, 
A study of the tabernacle reveals a regular proportion among the various dimensions, even the articles of furniture. Daniel and Revelation are especially rich in the symbolic use of numbers. But a caution, this is how Ram closes it, a caution. Apart from a few basic agreements on a very few numbers, fancy and foolishness characterizes the subject. The International Standard Biblical Encyclopedia in the article about number states, the symbolic use of numbers in the Bible cannot be doubted, although most writers go too far in their speculations. Do you hear what these authorities are saying? Yes, there's, there's something vital, powerful, symbolic, typological in the Bible about numbers, but most people take it and run way past the goal line with it. So just to remind you, on Sunday evenings we've been studying the types of the Old Testament. Now follow this numeric progression. We began by looking at week one, Adam, the type of Jesus, the federal head of a race, the one who acts for others. The second week, we studied the ark, the type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out. In week three, we looked at Christ typified in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. In week four, we looked at Joseph, the rejected kinsman and future savior. Week five, we looked at the Passover lamb. Week six, we looked at the Old Testament prophet Jonah being swallowed by the great fish and then coming out three days later as a clear type of Jesus in his resurrection. Jesus says so. It's a type. Week seven, we looked at Samson as a type of Christ. Week eight, we looked at manna as a type of Christ, the bread of life. In week nine, we looked at the rock that poured forth living water. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock was Christ. It was a type. Week 10, we studied the high priest as a type of Christ. In week 11, we looked at Joshua. Same name as Jesus. Victorious conqueror, lawkeeper, a willingness to stand alone, and a deliverer of sinners like Rahab. Tonight, intentionally on the 12th week, you're going to think, Carl, you are so clever to do this. Listen, the only one of us in the office who's clever is Pastor Dodds. He's the only one that can alliterate and can count. Taylor and Scotty and I just carry his bags all day long. So tonight, in our 12th type, we're going to look at a very different kind of type. A specific number. What's the number 12? And we're going to trace it all throughout the Old Testament and see its fulfillment in the New Testament. Now, if you were watching it all when Reuben was reading, and by the way, I could listen to his melodic voice all night long. I'm going to hire him to come to my house and just read the newspaper to me. But <clears throat> what you're going to, to see, or what you heard a moment ago, as Reuben read those two chapters, you thought, hey, I see what's going on here. Well, let me remind you about types. Types are prophetic. They point towards something in the New Covenant. Types move the reader to a fulfillment in the New Testament. Types are divinely designed. They're not accidents or coincidences. One of the things you're going to see in just a moment as we look at 12 texts in the Bible. And you're going to say, well, isn't that a coincidence? There sure do seem to be these same numbers popping up in the same idea. No, types aren't coincidences or accidents. They're an integral part of the history of redemption. It's the Lord's sovereign rule of history and his infinitely exact knowledge of the future that makes typology possible. 
He knows what, the, what is to come, what person, what events are at the center of human history. And so the Lord is w- able to weave into history all manner of anticipations to teach his people long before the events come to pass. From the time of Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise of the gospel, God began to make promises to save the full number of the elect. He did it in the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, then really outdid himself in the Abrahamic covenant, and then the Mosaic and the Davidic covenant. All these covenants were simply recurring promises by God to send a Redeemer and save all his people. Not just some, all. All the fullness of his people. J.C. Ryle says about this, it's quite clear that the souls of Old Testament believers fed much on God's covenant promises. They were obliged to walk more by faith than we are. They knew nothing of the great facts which we know about Christ's life, death, and resurrection. But they looked forward. They looked forward to redemption as a thing hoped for, not yet seen. And their only warrant for faith, Ryle says, was God's covenant promises. Ryle concludes, their faith puts us to shame. So far from disparaging old covenant believers, as many are disposed to do, we ought to marvel they were what they were. Now when we think about this salvation promised to Old Testament believers, salvation was normally promised to Abraham's descendants. That was the repeated statement. So when we come to the New Testament in Luke 1, for example, we are told in Mary's Magnificat, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers to save Abraham and his seed forever. And so the Jews of Jesus' day frequently made this claim because there had been so many promises made that God was going to save all the seed of Abraham. The Jews boasted that things like this in John 8. We are Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage. Look at an example of one who's a descendant of Abraham and the promises made to him. Look at Luke chapter 19. And again, we'll probably only look at 20, maybe 30 texts tonight. Luke 19, a very familiar passage, at least to your children. In Luke 19, the Lord passes Zacchaeus, the patron saint of all short men. And he is sitting in a tree. And the Lord Jesus tells him to come down. Some of you kids could probably sing a song about that. Please sing it in the car all the way home over and over again. Your mom and dad really want to hear that song. So in verse 6 we read, He made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He's going to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he is a son of Abraham. Well, that ended the discussion. Because everybody, everybody who'd read the Old Testament knew that salvation was promised to all true sons of Abraham. But Jesus isn't simply declaring that this great sinner is a a physical descendant of the father of Israel. Jesus is calling him a son of Abraham in the New Testament sense. Paul says this in Galatians 3, Therefore know that only those who have faith are sons of Abraham. 
Paul says it again in Romans 2. He says, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly, and his circumcision is of the heart. Jesus is saying of Zacchaeus, this man, even though he was a covenant child and was circumcised, had covenantal lineage coming out his ears, wasn't converted. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't really a son of Abraham. But now that he's exercised faith in the Messiah, now he is. What is it that makes one a child of Abraham? One of the 12 sons of Abraham exercising faith like Abraham did in Genesis 15, who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So in a moment when we look at these texts, oh, maybe only 35 or so of them. But when we look at these texts, we're going to see that these 12 tribes descending from Abraham speaks of the full number of the sons of Abraham, those justified like him by faith alone. These 12 tribes who entered into a covenant with God, we'll see in Exodus, promised to obey his commands and demonstrated that the full number of the elect loved the law of God. When the high priest wore the names of the 12 tribes on his breastplate and on his shoulders, he was loving and interceding for all of the elect of God. When Israel miraculously crossed the river Jordan into the promised land and the Lord commanded them to take, oh surprise, 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan and set them up in the promised land to commemorate the Lord's deliverance from bondage and his faithfulness in keeping his promises to bring them into Canaan. These 12 stones showed that God saved and delivered all his people. What we begin to see is the way the Lord uses the number 12 is it always speaks of The full number of the elect, the full number of the blessed, the full enjoyment of the reception of God's covenant promises. When Jesus calls the men who will be the foundation stones of the new covenant church in complete continuity with the old covenant, he chooses 12 men. We're even given their names, just like we're given the names of Abraham's 12 sons, actually his great-grandsons. And so what I want you to do is I want you to look at 12 assertions with me. Here's where you need your Bible. And I want you to be a Berean. I want you to say, Carl, on about the seventh assertion, I think I'm with you. So look at the first assertion. Look at Genesis 35. This was the reading that Reuben read to you a moment ago in Genesis 35. Verses 22 and following. We read, now the sons of Jacob, in other words, the great-grandsons of Abraham, the sons of Jacob were 12, and you have them named there. These are very familiar. You notice that Reuben is the eldest son, hence our Reuben, where that name comes from. It's not by accident. And then if you look at Exodus 24, that in Exodus 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, And he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the first assertion of the 12 I want you to hear tonight. The 12 tribes, what we begin to see, whether it's the 12 sons of Abraham, the covenant promises are made to the sons of Abraham, all 12 of them signifying fullness, completeness. Or whether it's what Moses builds this altar with 12 pillars at the foot of Mount Sinai. What we see at the very beginning in Genesis and in Exodus, that the 12 tribes were all of the people of God, symbolizing all those in covenant with Jehovah. So then look at a second line of evidence. Look at Exodus 28. Exodus 28, 
where the Lord says in verse 15 and verse 21, this is the breastplate for the high priest, you shall make the breastplate of judgment and the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names. Verse 21, each one with its own name, they shall be according to the 12 tribes. And then this is repeated in Exodus 39. After we are told that Moses made the breastplate, we read in Exodus 39, verses 8 and 14, there were 12 stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. According to their names engraved like a signet, each one with its own name according to the 12 tribes. And so now we start edging in a little closer with this second affirmation. We find out that all of the people of God, all his elect, the fullness of his elect were to be on the heart. The high priest wore these 12 stones with the 12 names of the tribes over his heart, demonstrating, pointing to that great high priest, the fulfillment of the office, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would have the full number of the elect upon his heart even when he was dying a bloody substitutionary death for them. Then look at a third line. Look at Numbers chapter 7. And I want you to notice, and you're going to say, well, Carl, after this, I'm slow, but even I'm starting to get it. Look at number 7, verse 84. We're seeing much of the, the silverware, the dishes for the tabernacle service. And we read in number 7, beginning in verse 84, this was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver platters, twelve silver bowls, twelve gold pans, the twelve gold pans full of incense. I'm surprised it doesn't read weighed twelve shekels apiece, but weighed ten shekels apiece. We read in verse 87, all the oxen for the burnt offering were twelve young bulls, the rams twelve, the male lambs in their first year twelve, with their grain offering and the kids of the goats as a sin offering twelve. And what we are supposed to see here as our third observation All the people of God, symbolized by the 12 bulls, the 12 rams, the 12 lambs, all the people of God, one for each tribe, are to receive the benefits of the substitutionary sacrifice of the Redeemer, of the Messiah. All of these offerings are pointing towards all of God's people, all 12 of them. All of those who are of the 12 sons of Abraham will receive the benefits of of the substitutionary work of the Messiah. And then look at Joshua chapter 4. You'll notice we just kind of keep turning right, so you don't have to be that slick a Bible scholar if you just turn right in your Bible. The people next to you will think you're really a Berean. In Joshua chapter 4, you have an astounding, astounding picture. Israel is leaving Egyptian bondage. They're coming into the promised land in Joshua 4 verse 2. The Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them saying, take for yourselves 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. Verse 4, then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. Verse 8, and the children of Israel did so just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan. Verse 9, then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. And then in verse 20, those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. And then notice 
what role these 12 stones are to have. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we'd crossed over. And so the lesson here now, the reason for the stones, middle of the river, on dry land in the promised land, all of God's people, once again, symbolized by these 12 stones, the 12 sons of Abraham, all of God's people were miraculously delivered and supernaturally brought by the Lord parting the waters into their inheritance. And so what we see is happening is a, a theology of 12-ness, a type of 12 is being picked up where, where even little kids walking by that stack of 12 stones say, uh, Dad, this is because we're one of the 12 tribes of Abraham. Yes, son, we are. And we are the people. God saved all his people and brought them into their rest. A fifth assertion. <clears throat> Look at Ezra chapter 8. And if you're thinking, Israel has blown it. They've blown it so horribly. All bets are off. All covenants are broken. God is going to forget. No more 12 anything. No more 12 sons. No more 12 stones. No more 12 animals being sacrificed. No 12 anything. They've been taken into Babylonian captivity. Horribly chastised for their idolatry. But look what still holds true when they're brought back into the land. In Ezra chapter 8, we read this, verse 35. Ezra eight thirty-five. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity. So they've been off in a far land. They've just come back home to Israel. Offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel. Do you see it? Do you see what the symbol of all of God's people always is? It's twelve something. In this case, it's 12 sacrificial bulls and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And the point we're going to see in this fifth assertion is after the Babylonian captivity, when Israel returns to the Lord, we see all of God's true people can be restored to fellowship and worship even after a season in the far country. That's what's being taught here. Because all of God's people now are restored to covenant with him. Look at a sixth assertion. And leap over to the New Testament. And now things really start to get exciting. Matthew chapter 10. When God comes in the flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think he'll pick up on this numeric motif? Well look what he does immediately as he begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter 10. We read. When he had called his... Twelve disciples to him. He gave them power over unclean spirits. Now I have to stop and say, well, what number, what other number would Jesus do when he's gathering the new foundation stones of the new covenant? There's really only one number that fits here. It's twelve. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then we are told the names of the twelve apostles. Why twelve apostles? To show the continuity and correspondence with the Old Testament model. These are the new 12 tribal leaders. Instead of Reuben and Benjamin, it's James and John. The seventh assertion about this type. Matthew chapter 19. Peter asked the question in Matthew 19 verse 27. 
Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying the superiority of all new covenant believers to all old covenant believers. Our privilege as, as sons of the new covenant are far greater. That's why these, these apostolic era 12 will judge the old covenant 12. Look at an eighth assertion in Matthew 26. And when you understand how this number 12 is used in scripture, it begins to boggle the mind. Matthew 26, we're in the garden of Gethsemane. It's Thursday night. Jesus is being arrested. And we read these words in Matthew 26, 53. Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's ear on, on Monday, Thursday night. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. <clears throat> or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he'll provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? The twelve legions here speaks of the Father's willingness to, to empty heaven of all the angelic host if the Son asked for them. This should tell you why it's so necessary for us to pray in Jesus' name. He'll be heard by the Father. But notice what Jesus states. He says, the Father will send the full company of the angels to save me if I but ask. A ninth assertion. Acts 26. Paul is standing in front of Agrippa in Acts 26. And he says in his own defense in Acts 26 verse 7. I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to this father, to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Now, I, I don't want to be hyper-technical here, but let me point out, when Paul says to Agrippa, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day. He's talking about true sons of Abraham, not just physical sons of Abraham. Because look at what the physical sons of Abraham are doing in this verse in Acts 26-7. They're accusing those who are the spiritual sons of Abraham, the real sons. And so Paul is saying to Agrippa, all believers have the blessed hope. But not all Jews, since they are among those who are accusing the saints. Look at a tenth example of this number 12 and how it's used in Scripture. It's a type. And, and please stay with me because in just a moment, we will come to that place that every type is, should land. And that is a glorious fulfillment. Look at James chapter 1. James writes in James 1 verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Now who James is writing here is not to, again, ethnic Israelites here. He's writing to those who have the faith of Abraham. And great Bible scholars, even including very conservative men like William Hendrickson, says the twelve tribes here is to be understood figuratively to refer to the fullness of God's elect people, the new Israel. 
God has one story and one people. So when James calls us, Gentiles, the 12 tribes, he's reminding us that God's plan doesn't have two peoples, two ways of salvation. There's one people, one way of salvation, one plan. Jews and Gentiles have been made into the one holy temple, one vine, one family, but always under the symbol and number 12. Now we're edging up to the fulfillment. Look at Revelation 7. The 11th assertion. And as I said, we'll make 12 assertions tonight about this. Revelation 7. John writes, and here's where John goes crazy with 12-ness. In Revelation 7, beginning in verse 5, John writes, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. Okay, kids, if you've had any decent schooling, you know what this is. It's 12 squared. And that's the point that's being made by John. Here's the number of the elect. 12 squared. All of the elect of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And then the other 11 tribes are listed, each stating that they too have 12,000 sealed. And the point that's being made here is the full number of the elect are in heaven. But here's where it gets really good. Here's where the fulfillment comes of the type. Look at Revelation 21. Reuben just read it to you a moment ago. And John paints for us the most glorious picture of heaven that we have. In fact, one of the only pictures of heaven we have. And after telling us that there will be no more death, no more crying, John in the vision begins to tell us what heaven looks like. And all we have is a rapid fire succession of 12. The full number of God's elect. And so notice what we see beginning in verse 12. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. Names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 16, The measurement is 12,000 furlongs, verse 17, 144 cubits or 12 squared. And then down in verse 2 of the next chapter, in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits. And so the point that's being made here is what started with just this seemingly innocent designation. Oh, Father Abraham has 12 sons. And now we see everything is completed and what John is desperately trying to communicate via via this revelatory vision is all of God's elect have made it home. And everything there screams that because 12 is this number, the full number of the elect. The whole nation of the elect consisted of all the sons of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham. And so whenever you study the number 12 in scripture, ask Is this showing from the sons of Abraham to the city of the new Jerusalem? Is this showing that God has a people and he's saving the whole number of the elect? Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for all the ways your word points us to the full salvation of all your people. Lord, by this testimony, by this type and its fulfillment, take away all of our fretting and worry that we will be left behind, that you will forget us. When you send us so many reminders that you will save all of your beloved elect. And so help us to hear this and be comforted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Take your Trinity Psalter hymnal now and turn to hymn 441 as we stand and sing Jesus, sinners doth receive. Hymn 441.